bandage up my eye with my own history, blind me to my own identity. Them tell me about 1066 and all that. Them tell me about Dick Whittington and Ikeas, but Toussaint Louvre, but you know, them never tell me about that. Toussaint the slave with vision, lick back Napoleon, battalion, and first black republic born. Toussaint the Thorn in the French, Toussaint the beacon of the Haitian revolution. Them tell me the man discovered the balloon and the cow jump over the moon. Them tell me the dish run away with the spoon, but them never tell me about Nanny the Maroon. Nanny, seafar woman of mountain dream, firewoman struggle, hopeful stream to freedom river. Them tell me about Lord Nelson and Waterloo, who about Shaga the Great Zulu. Them tell me about Columbus and 1492, who about the Caribbean and the Arawak too. Them tell me about Florence, Nightingale and Sheelan, and how Robin Hood used to camp. The very poor King Cole was a merry old soul. But them never tell me about Mary Seacole. From Jamaica she traveled far to the Crimean War. She volunteered to go, even though the British said no. She braved the Russian snow, a healing star among the wounded, a yellow sunrise among the dying. Them tell me what they want to tell me. But now I'm checking out my history, carving out Hello, hello and welcome to another episode of Straight Talking English. I am your host, Catherine. And if you would like to support what I do, you're a fan of my podcast or you just like straight up giving people money, then check out straighttalkingenglish.co.uk. There are links to all the books, including the book that accompanies this podcast, which as you can tell from the recording you just heard is John Agard's Checking Out Me History. You can also support the show on the link that says support the show. You can get links to all my context videos. The next one's going to be war photographer. Pretty exciting. Let's talk about checking out my history without any further ado. So it is not a coincidence that I have decided to pick this poem this week. I mean, partly I'm working through them in chronological order, but partly John Agard is the only black poet on our list for the GCSE syllabus. I am recording this on the 8th of June 2020, which is in the middle of the Black Lives Matter protests throughout London, throughout Birmingham, throughout the UK, throughout the world. We are entering into the third week of protest and violence in America. I'm making it very, very clear. Straight Talk English is a podcast that firmly believes that black lives matter and firmly believes that having one black poet, ah, gritted teeth, on the syllabus, along with the wonderful Intiaz Darker and Daljit Nagra representing non-white people is probably not enough. I always feel a little bit embarrassed that there is only one black guy on the syllabus and also I would have picked Mr Oxford Don, which is an absolutely brilliant poem about class rather than (laughs) checking out my history. But also this episode is super valid at the moment because 
the point that Agard is making that Dem tell me why Dem want to tell me is kind of linking into a lot of current events. Agard is saying like they, they, the mysterious they, which I'm assuming is the DFE, <laughs> that the mysterious they are not talking about Toussaint Louverture and they are not talking about Nanny de Maroon. They are talking about the man who invented the balloon. The irony, of course, is that after 2014, we couldn't talk about Toussaint Louverture anyway because he was a Haitian man. Nanny de Maroon is a Jamaican hero and Mary Seacole was born in Jamaica. And we have a focus on British history. The same as I would love to include some of the really, really fantastic 19th century black poets, which I found in the syllabus. But they're American people, so what are you going to do? And also, we couldn't even talk about Mr. Montpellier, the man who invented the balloon, because he was a French dude. But anyway, the reason this is coming up a lot is because a lot of people are arguing that one of the reasons why there is endemic racism in the UK is because British colonial history is not taught in schools. I've been talking to one of my friends about this. So my friend and I have known each other since we were 12. She is engaged to a Barham gentleman who moved to the UK when he was 13. So he had an experience of a Caribbean education system and a London education system. He was absolutely shocked that myself and my friend know nothing about slavery or British colonialism. He was taught it very extensively as part of his Caribbean history growing up and we know about it because our very lefty right on English teacher in year eight gave us a project about slave literature. That's the only reason we know anything and I'm gonna hold my hands up here I was pretty ignorant until I wrote the Sign of Four book and had to proper delve into Empire. I found it very distressing. In fact, uh, one of the books I actually had to close and walk out of the coffee shop and take a little walk when I was researching. But we've had to deal with that as an adult. In a recent article in The Guardian, Maya Goodfellow has argued that the national curriculum says that young people are supposed to learn about how Britain has influenced and been influenced by the wider world but when it comes to a central part of this country's history they can there can be near silence it's contained in a one month of learning or hived off from the core curriculum in the form of optional modules the home office has been recommended that that staff should learn about the history of the uk and its relationship with the rest of the world including britain's colonial history she goes on to say if we were all taught about colonial history in school we'd learn from a young age that many of the people who came here from colonies and former colonies did so as citizens, not as immigrants. We discussed how so-called immigration policies influenced from the 60s onwards were designed to make it more difficult for people of colour to come into this country and we'd examine the forms of resistance that came with this. The academic Gominda Bambra says that the government created policies of racialization. She said if we understood that we wouldn't just shift the boundary of citizen and migrant to include people from former colonies. To say that I'm not a migrant is not a lack of solidarity with those who are migrants. If we were to accept that I'm British then that would mean that we would have to think differently about migration in the present. Agard is in a very good position to talk about migration because as we know he was not born in the UK. In fact, he was born in beautiful 
Guyana. He, 1949. He says Grace, his wife, the poet Grace Nichols, and I were born in Guyana and worked together as journalists in Georgetown. We dreamt of becoming writers, but there was no publishing infrastructure in the colonies. So we came to London in 77 and were living in Neasden with my father. He said, he described the pull of the mother country as the result of a childhood spent studying Chaucer and Shakespeare. It was a strong connection, despite the conflicts and brutalities of the past. Agard has spent more time living in Britain than in his native homeland, yet he's still influenced by his upbringing in Guyana. As a result, he says com continents fill his head, face, and inspire his creativity. I'm focusing on an article from The Telegraph when I'm saying this. I ask him if he's ever had to contend with racial prejudice in Britain. Well, let's put it this way, I've never been arrested by the police or experienced any physical confrontations as such, he says, but any black person living in England would be deceiving themselves if they said they'd never experienced even just subtle racism, a changing in the tone of someone's voice for instance. The sooner we can face the fact that Western education is entrenched with preconceived notions of other societies, the better. It's healthy and liberating question these perceptions and like again i'm very very white i'm like the palest white person i tried to get foundation mixed at a beauty counter once and it came out like tipex but i've worked in schools with staff from a number of backgrounds and i remember um two staff who are people of color they're both dudes of about the same age both came into school late the police had set up a roadblock specifically looking for a Caribbean man who was driving a car in a certain direction. But both dudes had been stopped. One guy was very tall and thin with dreads down his back and the other guy was kind of chunky and shorter with very short hair. And I'm like, how can someone be answering a description that is simultaneously tall and thin and short and chunky and have long and short hair? It's just nonsense that both these gentlemen have been stopped. But where where does Agard get his ideas from? Where did checking out my history come from, aside from this sense of frustration? He says the idea for a poem can happen right out the blue. Maybe you see a line in a book you're reading, let's say on a train. Great place for writing poems, by the way. Or you can hear something on the telly, or an odd story in the newspaper grabs you. Or an old memory comes back to you, perhaps through a photograph or a song. Then suddenly something clicks and you coax the seed of the idea into flower using the building blocks of words. But even after you've crafted the poem on the page, you need some time and distance away from the poem in order to go back to it with a fresh eye. That's when you're likely to spot words that aren't quite right or lines that aren't necessary. Don't be afraid to cut. Remember the old proverb, any fool could write, but it takes a genius to erase. Say the poem aloud to yourself so you can feel the music in your mouth. And that's why I wanted to recall, or that's why I wanted to give you, sorry, that recording of him reading it, because he half sings the poem, and that's what it's designed to do. But this poem is a little bit more specific. Focusing the, on the Caribs and the Arawaks, who were the original inhabitants of the Caribbean islands. It's where we get the name Caribbean from. Agard said in this Telegraph interview, I was educated at a Roman Catholic school. It was a good education, but the first line in my history book was something like, West Indian history begins in 1492 with the arrival of Columbus. 
which when you're 13 you might not question, but looking back it's a very arrogant sentence, as if history only begins with the arrival of a European. You can't turn back the wheel of history, and that actually has a hyphen in it, so I'm assuming he's actually like changed that word somehow. But maybe you can change the direction of the wheel, in the sense that those who weren't given a voice, their story can be told. The one thing people have to be aware of is how language is corrupted. You end up with all these vile expressions like limited collateral damage. And he's like waving his hands airily when he says this. The so-called powers that be use language in a vile way to cloud people's minds. Then it's easy to resort back to a tribal ghetto. People say the outside world is threatening us, which is a pity because they are amputating their own possibilities. Right, that's that's the ideological baggage behind it. Let's talk about some of the people that come up in this poem. Specifically, Toussaint Louverture, Nanny de Maroon, and Mary Seacole. Let's start with Toussaint, because I knew about him before researching this. So back when I was a student, I was waitressing to get, you know, a little bit of student money, student job. And one of the chefs was a Haitian dude. We were chatting away about the French Revolution, because you do. And he was saying, well, can I tell you about the six Haitian revolutions? I was like, I have no idea about this. But Toussaint Louverture is a famous revolutionary general. Let me tell you a little bit about him. He was born in northern Haiti in 1743 as the grandson of a captured African chieftain. A slave till he was 45, he rode his horse so well he was known as the centaur of the savannas. In early childhood, he had taught himself to read and was familiar with Caesar's military writings, as well as the polemics of the French abolitionist Abbé Reynal. Like most Haitians today, L'Overture was a voodooissant, or adept of voodoo, a peaceable creed that marries Catholic Catholicism with African animism. Most historians agree that Haiti slaves first rose up in rebellion under a Jamaican voodoo priest named Bookman. On the night of August 15th, 1741, Bookman called on the spirits of ancestral Africa to punish the plantocracy, like the people who owned plantations. L'Overture is said to have taken part in this ceremony and within six weeks the island's rebel slave armies had begun their 12-year struggle for freedom. That night a thousand French whites were reportedly massacred and their plantations set ablaze. L'Overture led the only successful slave revolt in modern history. But what made it possible? The French Revolution of 1789-91 had proclaimed equality among all men. Slavery was now an intolerable, intolerable injury to human nature. And in 1794, the National Assembly in Paris ordered the French in colonial Saint-Domingue, 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 to liberate their slaves. They refused. Haishi was too valuable. L'Overture vowed to defeat the enemies of the new French Republic, but encountered fierce resistance. The prospect of a free black state founded on the murder and expulsion of its white community horrified these French colonists as surely as it did all the Western world. It was not until 1862 that the US recognised Haishi's independence. In 1793, 
fearful that Louverture's revolt would spread to the neighbouring British slave colony of Jamaica, and hoping to add the island to its own Caribbean possessions, King George III sent 27,000 troops to Haiti. The ensuing occupation turned out to be one of the greatest, if still least known, catastrophes of British imperial history. Tropical disease killed George III's redcoat soldiers in their thousands before they finally capitulated to Louverture. It was the first time in history that a European army had surrendered to a black general, and that defeat inspired William Blake. Connection! Back to Blakey! His poem, America, a Prophecy. In 1801, in flagrant violation of the principles of the French Revolution, Napoleon abandoned his support of the Haitian uprising and organised an expedition to overthrow Louverture and his enfranchised slaves. The French set sail a week before Christmas, in from the harbours of Brest. L'Overture should be clapped in irons, or perhaps carried to Paris in a golden cage and exhibited at the newly opened Jardin de Plantes. But L'Overture was not to be fooled. He set fire to coastal towns and awaited the invaders in the interior. When the French landed, they assumed the entire island was ablaze. Lady Nugent, who was the American wife of Jamaica's British governor, watched aghast as the conflagration raged. It seems that Toussaint's plan is to distress the French as much as possible, she wrote in her journal. Six months into Napoleon's invasion, on June 7th, 1802, a trap was set. Despite warnings from his allies, L'Overture agreed to discuss administrative administrative matters with the French at their colonial headquarters. Once there, he was handcuffed and put in a frigate bound for France. No mercy was shown him. For five months, he languished in a dungeon overlooking the Swiss border. On Bonaparte's orders, he was humiliated by his jailers, dressed in convict's clothes and denied firewood. From his snowbound captivity, L'Overture pleaded with Napoleon for his release. His letters make pitiful reading. A remedy had already been devised. As the Haitian lay afflicted with pneumonia, all medical attention was abandoned. His official cause of death was apoplexy and he died on April 7, 1803. He was 57. After 10 months in jail, L'Overture did not live to see the proclamation of the Haitian Republic. It is a sad story, but if we look at his legacy in terms of being a revolutionary leader, yeah, he is really awesome. Let's talk about Nanny de Maroon now, Seafar woman. She is a really big deal in Jamaica. I didn't know this. She is memorialised on the Jamaican $500 banknote. So if you go on holiday to Jamaica, or you are from Jamaica, or you have a friend who's just come back, you could have a look at their banknote and see her face. You see, much of her early life is unknown, including her birthplace. What's certain is that she and other enslaved people sought refuge from a brutal slave society in the mountains of Jamaica, where together they established a maroon community. Maroons are slaves who escape their owners and live as free people in their own towns. They developed their own government system, their own traditions. In 1720, Nanny had become leader of a maroon settlement called Nanny Town in the Blue Mountain region. At the same time that Nanny headed this communities, her other contemporaries led other maroon communities, but we don't really know her relationship to them. She trained her maroon warriors in the art of guerrilla warfare. It's said that she was a great obeyer woman, again this voodoo, and worked magic to protect her warriors from their British enemies. The British fought Nanny and her maroon troops from 1728 to 1734. In 1734, British commander Stoddard destroyed Nanny Town and claimed to have killed all of the maroons residing there. In fact, Stoddard had not destroyed the Maroons, nor did he kill Nanny. 
She and some of the survivors took refuge near the Rio Grande in Jamaica. In 1739, another Maroon leader, Kudjo, signed a peace treaty with the British. Later, because of this treaty, Nanny and her troops were granted 500 acres of land on which to settle. The settlement that emerged from this land was called New Nanny Town. We don't really know when she died, it's probably about 1750, but her legacy is intense. She is this like symbol of resistance and power. So we have a revolutionary leader who established his own state. We have someone who maybe, maybe her life is a little bit mysterious, but she is symbolic to Caribbean people. And the third person he mentions is Mary Seacole. We're talking someone who is famous, but was very much overshadowed and ignored by the establishment. I really like Mary Seacole, actually. I read about her quite a lot. It's quite easy to read about her because she wrote her own autobiography called The Amazing Adventures of Mrs Seacole in Many Lands. Florence Nightingale was her contemporary and she turned down Nanny to work for her because of her skin colour. This is during the Crimean War, so link back to Charge of the Light Brigade. Nightingale was very much like everything is healthy, everything is boring, everything is straight-laced, like purity and hygiene in every matter. And okay, okay, not to take away from her legacy of like revolutionising nursing, antiseptics, this is all good stuff. But Mary Seacole recognised the need for like emotional care as well. She had experience as a doctor, but it was mostly like herbal medicine and she was self-trained. And we're getting into the period of British history where you need a bit of paper to prove everything. And she didn't have that. But what she set up was what she called a hotel. They had fresh cooked Jamaican food, which, okay, in the middle of the horrors of the Crimean War, you were gonna want some tasty Jamaican food. She had fresh fruit brought over from England. They had music. You could have a little glass of wine. She would like entertain people. A lot of them called her mother because she gave this like nurturing side to the nursing profession. And for that, that we recognise now that to get better, especially from a traumatic experience, is partly this emotional recovery. And it's for that that she deserves more recognition. She said, I have never been long in any place before I have found my practical experience in the science of medicine useful. Even in London, I found it of service to others. And in the Crimea, where doctors were so overworked and sickness was so prevalent, I could not long be idle. For I had never forgot that my intention in seeking the army was to help the kind-hearted doctors to be useful to whom I have ever looked upon and still regard with so high a privilege. But before long I found myself surrounded by patients of my own and this for two simple reasons. In the first place, the men, for I am speaking of the ranks now, had a very serious objection to going into hospital for any but urgent reasons, and the regimental doctors were rather fond of sending them there. In the second place, they could and did get at my store, sick comforts and nourishing food where the heads of the medical staff would somewhat find it difficult to procure. These reasons, and with the additional one that I was very familiar with the diseases which they suffered from and successful in their treatment, 
quite sufficient to account for the numbers that came daily to the British Hotel for medical treatment. The officers were glad of me as a doctoress and nurse, maybe easily understood, when a poor fellow lay sickening in his cheerless hut and sent down to me. He knew very well that I should not ride up in answer to his message empty-handed, though although I did not hesitate to charge him with the value of the necessities I took him, still he was thankful enough to be able to purchase them. When we lie ill at home surrounded by comfort, we never think of feeling any special gratitude for the sick room delicacies, which we accept as the consequence of our illness. But the poor officer lying ill and weary in his crazy heart, dependent for the merest necessities of existence upon a clumsy, ignorant soldier cook, who would almost prefer eating his meat raw to have the trouble of cooking it, often finds his greatest trouble in want of those little delicacies which a weak stomach must be humoured into retaining nourishment. She had a lot of, yeah, she had a lot of foresight in terms of what someone who is suffering needs. The other thing that comes up, which I am actually really happy I found the whole story of, is Dick Whittington and his cat. So, it kind of is pantomime thing now a couple of years ago i saw a satirical comedy political pantomime with one of my friends and it was dick whittington and his cat that's basically the only like reference we have now of this so basically this little dude hears that the streets are paved with gold in london he goes to london has all kinds of adventures has a pet cat who helps him and eventually becomes Lord Mayor of London. It's one of these Victorian heartwarming stories which is mostly fictional and set in the 14th century. It is part of this like British-ish cultural identity like Morris dancing and all that. Dick Whittington, he is in there but he is fictional and yet he is given sufficient value that he is placed in equal to Mary Seacole and Nanny de Maroon and that's the problem that John Agard is having. This is a poem about resistance, about making your own way. It's the decision that we're making is what do we celebrate? Who do we venerate? Are we going to celebrate Easter? Are you going to be someone who celebrates Diwali? Are you going to listen to Florence Nightingale? Are you going to listen to Mary Seacole? Are you going to check out your own history? It's kind of a challenge to the reader like i'm doing this this is my statement are you gonna do it and coming back to this imperial thing throughout this whole straight talking english project i have been researching relevant history a lot of it and um, my own history i guess is that my family lived in the east end for just about 100 years between 1870 and about 1980 I was the first generation to be born outside of Bethnal Green. My mum's side are Irish, came over in 1919. A lot of my personal history has been, a lot of like that history, my personal family history, is coming up in my research. But also wider things that people would have experienced. Jack the Ripper, for example, I mentioned in my Halloween episode, would have come up in you know two greats of a grandfather's life since he was living down the road you know and if we take nothing else from this poem except there's some really cool people that john agard knows about is why not check out your own history why not have a think about things which people have told you 
why not, why not check it out? Why not fact check it? Why not read about it? Why not like make your own historical identity? And that's what this British colonial history, bring it in schools. It's like this understanding thing. It all comes back to that of understanding who we are. And that's why Agard is making it personal and also wider. This is the poem that most people really like in the anthology. And I guarantee that if you say to someone, like, what's the poem you're going to remember most? He's probably going to be Agard. He is quite, quite the dude. He's also at them poetry live events that they do every year. So... Thank you very much for listening to my ramble about John Agard and Nanny D. Maroon. Thank you, thank you very much. StraightTalkingEnglish.co.uk support the show by the book that goes along with this episode. Thanking you very much and I will return next week. <laughs>